You're listening to audio from Embassy Church. We exist to advance the message and ministry of Jesus in the city of Bloomington, on the campus of IU, and to the ends of the earth. Psalm 51 uh, reads like this. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the blood, excuse me, from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So um, what we've been going through this summer is, is a summer in the Psalms. Um, and the Psalms give us these, these snapshots of who God is and who we are in light of him as God's people, right? Um, and... There's 150 of them, um, and what, what we've said previous weeks is the Psalms are, are, are God's words that he gives to us to give back to him, right? And kind of like a, a parent talking to a child. Um, and, and Psalm 51 gives us probably the most important words we need to learn, um, words of I'm sorry. You know, if you're a parent and you've got little kiddos, you tell your kiddos that a lot, right? Say I'm sorry, and you have to train them to do that because apologies don't come naturally for people do they? Right? They're not easy. We don't repent naturally. We have to be trained to do it. We have to train ourselves to do it. And I'm 35, or about to be, um, and, and I'm still not very good at it. Repentance is, is not a natural response of the human heart. Defensiveness, sure. Denial, sure. But not repentance, okay? And so, um, Psalm 51 is going to kind of give us um, a a picture of how to say I'm sorry, how to respond to God in repentance when we've found ourselves fallen, okay? So again, um, this is what I want to do. I actually want to focus us in uh, on the front little chunk of Psalm 51, what's called the superscript, okay? Um, and it's going to give us a little context and color in the dots, okay? Because Psalm 51 um, is a powerful, powerful psalm, uh, especially when you understand the context in which King David wrote it, okay? So uh, if you have a Bible, what you'll notice um, when you look at Psalm 51 is there's a little superscript. You can see the title, at least in my Bible, uh, it's titled, A Prayer for Restoration. And then it says, for the choir director, a psalm of David. And then it says this, okay? It says, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. And then right below my psalm, there's a little Another superscript, a little W actually in my Bible, uh, and it, it brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And so um, I want you to, to keep your finger in your Bible at Psalm 51, and I want you to flip backwards to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 11, chapter 12. Um, throughout this summer, we've watched um, or we've looked at these Psalms, and most of them are written by David thus far. Um, and a lot of them are written from, from the perspective of David on a spiritual mountaintop, okay? But we've also seen Psalms of David where he's been in spiritual valleys. But most of the spiritual valleys that we've looked at have been um, David feeling dejected because of someone else's sin. God is far from me because someone's offense against me. 
Psalm 51 is a spiritual valley, but not because of someone else's sin, but because of David's sin himself. And what's so terrifying about Psalm 51 isn't that God feels far from him, but that God feels near to him. Ever been there? Right? We, we, we can all relate to the spiritual mountaintops, I'm sure. But can you relate to the spiritual valleys? Right? Can you relate to the dejection? Have you ever been in a place, and I'm sure you have, where, um, man, it's just the worst day of your life. And it's not the worst day of your life because someone else's offense. It's the worst day of your life because your own offense. It's not terrifying because God feels far away. It's terrifying because God feels near. And your sin is ever before you. The context of Psalm 51, you can find in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. Um, and if you're not familiar with the story, I'm going to sum it up really quick. Um, but it is, it is quite literally the worst day of David's life, okay? Uh, the worst days, if you will. And David had some bad days, okay? Uh, King David was hunted by King Saul for years, right? And there are psalms of just like, God, you feel far, and this is hard, this isn't like that. This is God, and you feel near, and this is hard. Because, again, this is going to be a picture of David just broken because of his sin. All right? So Psalm 11, uh, excuse me, 2 Samuel 11, if I can flip to it. Give me a second. Um, kind of goes this way. We don't have a lot of time to break this down. Um, but I, I do encourage you, if you're taking notes, just to kind of write these verses down and, and read through these two chapters. Because it just kind of reads like a train wreck. Like you just see it coming and you're just like, no, no, no. And you're just going, whoa. And, and again, in, in some respects, this is so extreme, some of us would find it hard um, to even sympathize with. But I, I want you to not just notice the details, just notice the, 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 the pattern. Because it, it should be something we're all familiar with. All right? Sin always leads us where we don't want to go, always keeps us longer than we plan to stay, and always costs us more than we can afford to pay. All right? It takes us where we don't plan to go, it keeps us longer than we plan to stay, and it always costs us more than we can afford to pay. This is chapter 11 in David's experience. All right? And you just see the author of 2 Samuel writing this out in the first couple of verses, but David's supposed to be with his men, marching out in the spring to protect Israel, and he's not where he's supposed to be, okay? Uh, and then late one night, David notices a beautiful young woman bathing on a rooftop, and he doesn't stop at the noticing, but he lets that noticing go to inquiring, and he lets that inquiring go to entertaining. He gives temptation a toehold until it takes a foothold and then starts a stronghold. Can you resonate with that? I would say yes. If you're a human being, you understand just the downward spiral of sin to where before you know it, it's like quicksand and you're stuck. And it doesn't matter how hard you struggle, you can't get out of it. This is where David's in in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Because by the time he's done, he's broken five of the Ten Commandments. And he's an adulterer and he's a murderer. That's 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is how it ends, and this is how chapter 12 starts. It ends with David thinking that he's got away scot-free. And then these, these words say this, However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's the closing lines of chapter 11. That's the opening lines of chapter 12. And chapter 12 is this, massive fall from grace. Spiritual mountaintops, King David, the, the one who penned so many of these psalms, the one who penned Psalm 40 uh, on, a, on a spiritual height, right, Psalm 51. And he goes from spiritual highs to spiritual lows, from peaks to valleys, just like that. And Psalm 51 is going to give us David's response to the conviction that comes from the prophet Nathan. And I want to clarify for us because uh, I, I don't want you to misunderstand um, what I mean by the worst of his days. 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan comes to David, gives him this just brilliant parable. David, incensed at the man in the parable, says that man deserves to die, and <laughs> Nathan, like a boss, goes, you're that man. 
Okay, it is a powerful, powerful dialogue. And David is just broken over. And, 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 and Nathan just goes, this is what you've done. This is, this is your sin. And these, this is the brokenness and the consequences that are going to come from it. And David, in response to that, pins Psalm 51. Okay? 2 Samuel chapter 12 is not the worst day of David's life. I know sometimes it feels like that, and, and there's, there's a couple categories of people in this room here this morning. Um, some of you might be in a lot of secret sin, and you think you're getting away with it scot-free, okay? And the worst day of your life, you may fear, is that being found out, right? That being brought out of the darkness into light. The, 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 the second Samuel chapter 12 moment. That's not the worst day of David's life. The worst day of David's life is all in chapter 11, the best day of David's life is the mercy of God sending Nathan to him to say, I know what you did. Right? Because sin always overpromises and underdelivers. And God, mercifully enough, doesn't let David continue in his rebellion. Doesn't let David continue in his sin, which only leads to brokenness for himself and for others. And you just see the trail of tears. So 2 Samuel chapter 12 is not the worst day of David's life. It's the most painful but it's probably the best because 2 Samuel chapter 11 is full of worse days. What's interesting for us this morning is how David responds to this 2 Samuel chapter 12 moment. How David responds to the prophet Nathan coming to him and going, God sees what you've done. And here's the consequence of it. Okay? Now, Look at verse 3 and 4 of, uh, of Psalm 51. You can flip back, and you see this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, but, but you see it in, in, in David's response in Psalm 51. He says, I'm conscious of my rebellion. And he says in verse 4, against you and you alone have I sinned. Okay? Now, David ultimately understood what Nathan was doing and calling him out for his sin, all right? David understood this. He understood not only did his sin, not only was it an offense against his neighbor, right? He sinned against Uriah. He took his life. He sinned against Bathsheba. He used his authority and his power as king to ask of her something that the scripture's silent on, but, but he abused his power, um, Okay? Not only did he sin against himself, but ultimately he sinned against God. But his response is what I'm interested in this morning. What David did in those valley moments, in those fallen down, broken, just convicted moments, in those I'm on the floor weeping and sobbing, and I can't believe of what I've done. What did David do? He responded in repentance. And so I want to break this down a little bit, but I want to ask these questions. Um, and I'm doing it with the premise that, that we're all like David. We all, you will fail multiple times in your life in ways that just absolutely flabbergast you. It, it's so interesting as a pastor talking to people because I feel like um, the conversation I have to have a lot um, is is when people come to me and they're, they're sharing a lot of their brokenness, um, it's almost like I have to sober them to go, what did you expect? Like we always, always overestimate our capacity, right? Um, and, and it's not an absolution of, of a wrong. It's just a recognition that the human person is frail. So my question for us this morning is, when you fail, which you will, when you stumble... What do you do in that moment? Like, what do you do in response to falling? Okay. Uh, do you deny your sin, which is what most of us do, right? Do you deny it and continue to walk in darkness? Do you degrade yourself and heap shame upon your head? That's a pretty common one. You don't deny it, but you just kind of like beat yourself up. Right? Or do you drop to your knees and repent? And there's really three big things that we can do that people do. When faced with their sin, like David was because of Nathan, 
David dropped to his knees. Psalm 51 is a drop-to-your-knee kind of psalm. And if we can take a page from this, if we can look at David not as this perfect example of how to be just the godliest man, because he was far from it, but how to repent and walk in restoration, then we can walk with Jesus for a lifetime, okay? So do you deny your sin and continue to walk in darkness? Do you degrade yourself and just heap shame upon your head, or do you drop to your knees? How do we respond when we find ourselves fallen, when we finally see the sin that was always before us, we just couldn't see it, okay? So David's going to give us a model of repentance. So um, this is how I want to break down Psalm 51. we got 19 verses, um, but I, I, want us to t- I want to tell us a few things about repentance. You ready? Um, ultimately, repentance, who it's from, how it works, and what it's for, okay? Who it's from, how it works, and what it's for. Psalm 51 is going to give us just the rudimentary principles of repentance. And what I love about it is um, there's no clear organization to it, all right, Uh, as there shouldn't be, okay? It's not this kind of like textbook. It's just a raw response to just crashing from spiritual heights. But there's five elements in it that we're going to see in a second that are a must for repentance, okay? They're a must for repentance, but I want to start with who it's from, okay? Um, Who is repentance from? Ultimately, repentance is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. It is not just a gift to God. It is a gift of God. What do I mean? Again, the Lord sending Nathan to David was a mercy of God. It was a blessing. Think about all the brokenness that came from chapter 11. God was merciful on David enough to bring conviction. But that's not how we think about conviction, let alone repentance, is it? Right? We, we, we feel conviction now post-cross by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? This little Nathan, if you will, working in our hearts. And a lot of times we, we just want to deny it, right? We don't want to deal with it, or we, we move to just kind of degrading ourselves in shame. But do we give thanks for it? Right? The, the most important foundational thing that you can understand about repentance is who it's from. It's a mercy of God to turn you back to him. That's what repentance is. It's a U-turn. It's an about face. All right? So I want us to get this picture. Uh, if, if sin is ultimately, and we're going to look at this a little bit in a sec, but if it's ultimately an offense against a holy God, if it's divine treason... The way the Bible posits sin is it's rebellion. And you're running away from the one being who is the source of life to look to other things to give you life that always overpromise and underdeliver. So conviction is meant to stop us in our tracks, bring us to a place of repentance, which is just an about face and a return. That's a mercy, right? Those are like guardrails on the bridge, so you don't just go over the edge. But that's not how we think about it, right? If it was, we wouldn't deny it. We wouldn't just like feel the conviction of the Spirit and then be like, ah, it's not that bad. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. Everyone does it, right? And we just kind of like make excuse for our sin. We don't want to just stare at it for what it is. We definitely don't want to bring it in the light. But man, David understands that repentance and conviction is ultimately the work of God in his life, and he embraces it. He grabs a hold of it as just a life raft, okay? So we got to understand who repentance is from, that it's ultimately from God. It's not something we offer back to him as much as it's something he gifts to us to help us walk with him, to help us be satisfied in things that really satisfy not things that overpromise and underdeliver. Okay, um, this makes sense again if we understand sin as the Bible estimates it. All right, and and I I said this once, and I want to go back to it because I don't want to breeze past it. Sin, as the Bible presents it, the Bible's estimation of sin is its divine treason. What do I mean? It's rebellion from a holy God. So let me say it this way. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, 
God was there. I want you to think about it for a second. In every one of these moments, David on the rooftop noticing and then inquiring and then indulging. In the king's chambers with Bathsheba, as he's writing a note to Joab, the commander of the army, to put Uriah on the front line. In every one of these moments in 2 Samuel chapter 11, God was there. It wasn't hidden from his sight. The adultery, the murder, in every single moment of your life and mine, God is there. It's a shocking thought, right? But God sees. And so the only person we're tricking when we're trying to hide in our sin is ourselves. It's not that God isn't aware of it, right? But shame has a way of making us kind of sow fig leaves on ourselves and just hide and stay in darkness, right? When we understand that sin is not just an offense against another, it's not just an offense against ourselves or our own body, ultimately at its core it's an offense against God, it makes us think differently about it. It forces us to reckon with God and ultimately ask for his forgiveness. And this is what David just nails in Psalm 51. Again, look at this verse in verse 3 and verse 4. I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. And then he says this, against you and you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David gets that at its core, repentance comes from God, and ultimately his sin and his offense is completely before God. And so he goes to God for forgiveness. This isn't how we think about sin. Frankly, in our culture, sin almost doesn't have any meaning. We live in a subjective, relative culture. We don't want to call a spade a spade. And so it is almost just like, just completely off the rocker to look at sin the way the Bible does. Just calling what it is, black and white. But the Bible's estimation of sin is that it's serious. It's an offense against the holy God. It's divine treason. Now, uh, I want to give just a quick nod to, um, to, to a, a little differentiating thing between like conviction and shame. And, and I hope I'm not confusing all of my language. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, um, 710 actually, has a, has a powerful verse that says this. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. So what's going on when we find ourselves in sin and by the mercy of God we become aware of it? Because sin, is, it has a callousing effect on our hearts. Right? Like, it, 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 the, the friction when we rub up against sin kind of hardens our hearts to where we don't even feel it anymore. And it takes a crash for us to go like, man, how did I get here? Like, we shock ourselves. I, I didn't realize I was capable of this. Right? It's usually what those, those valley moments feel like. Okay? There's conviction that you can feel in that moment, which is meant to turn you around. That's godly grief, meant to turn you back to him. But there's also, at times, shame that you can feel, which is meant just to stomp you down. How do you know the difference? Well, where you at? Where you at? Are you still on the floor, just wallowing in it, worldly shame? Are you standing back up, dusting your feet off, and going, thank you, God, for showing me what I couldn't see beyond the work of your spirit and walking towards him? That's the delineation between worldly shame and godly grief. Okay? David understands this. So that pinprick, he feels it, but he doesn't wallow in it. Okay? And he owns it. So I want us to look at how repentance works because he feels conviction and then he, he repents. He returns back to God. I want to break down a couple elements of Psalm 51. Um. I have no idea if this timer is right because I'm two minutes over by now, but I'm just going to keep going. So this could be a really long sermon, or I'll be right on time because they messed up the timer. Um, but I got a few things to say. So repentance, how it works. There's five elements in Psalm 51 that 
you see David going in and out of and coming back to. And again, if you're taking notes, I want you to write these down, but one for each finger that, that you got to get a grasp on. And guys, this is, again, I, I can't overstate how important it is uh, at its basic level just to understand repentance. This is the mark of a Christian, not perfection, being perfected, and that takes repentance. It's the work of God in our life, okay? So the Christian life starts with repentance, and it carries on with repentance. The first words Jesus ever spoke when he stepped foot on this earth, started his ministry, was repent. Return to God, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, okay? There's five elements to repentance that I want you to grasp. I'm going to run through them real quick, but I, I, I want to point them out in the psalm. And again, there's, there's not some clear chiastic structure to Psalm 51, um, but, but you wouldn't expect there to be. Like, this is a man pouring out his heart, okay? Um, first, there's an appeal to mercy, okay? So, for your thumb, appeal to mercy. Look at verse 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, God. According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. That cry of appeal, and he appeals to the character of God, not because he deserves it, but because God is faithful, because God is merciful, because God is loving. He's appealing to the unchanging character of God, all right? So there's an appeal to mercy. You see it in verse 1 and 2. You see it in verse 10 and 12. Then there's an acknowledgment of offense, okay? So first an appeal, then an acknowledgment. Look at verse 3 and 4. Again, I'm conscientious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done less evil in your sight. He doesn't try and skirt around it. Um, one of the counseling terms that um, I heard and needed to hear years ago that, that you'll probably hear me say and have said is, is we're only as sick as our secrets. We're only as sick as our secrets. Okay. Like, what a beautiful day when you can get to the point where you have zero secrets, where, where, where no one's got anything on you. Uh, I've gotten this email a, a few times, um, and probably the most recent time was maybe about two years ago, but it's a spam email. I don't, well, I don't know if they can tell between guys and girls, so maybe if you're a lady, you've gotten these before. Um, but it, it's an email um, extorting the receiver for money, um, and, and it kind of goes like this. And I've gotten a few of them. I got one a, a few years ago, and I just kind of pondered on it. But, but the email would, would read like this. All of them have. Hey, just wanted to let you know, we've hacked into your computer, and we videotaped you looking at some really suspicious pornogra pornographic material. If you don't pay this Venmo account this much money by this time, we're going to expose you. Anyone ever gotten those emails? Just me? Oh, that's weird. That's awkward. <laughs> well, what's in your search history that you would get? No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, the last time I got one of those emails, I think I've gotten two or three of them uh, over the years. And stuff's misspelled in it, and you're just like, where's this coming from, you know? Um, I just had to sit and just ponder how sad that was that that email could get sent out because it actually worked for people, right? Like if it never worked, they'd stop sending that out. But it's got to work for some percentage of guys that are just like, dude, I'll pay the 50 bucks, the 500 bucks, whatever it is, just so I don't take the chance, right? And I just started to think about how sad that was, okay? There was a time in my life years ago where that email would have freaked me out. By the grace of God, that stronghold in my life, and I've shared different parts of my story, but just the stronghold of pornography in my life that I struggled with in high school, right, that I gave a toehold, and then it took a foothold, and then it, it had a stronghold that God freed me from, to where I can go, like, that's not possible. Like, it's literally not possible. Publish every website I've ever looked at for the last 15 years. You won't find it. There's a time in my life where I would be terrified for someone to look at my search history, just hiding in darkness. And just to acknowledge that, are you kidding me? And to bring all that into light. And then like, man, just to own it. 
And what you see here with David and repentance is like it gets brought to light and he just goes, yeah, guilty. Shade it, doesn't try and like, you know, angle it. It's like, well, you know, everybody does it kind of thing. Just boys will be boys. He just acknowledges it. And then more than that, look at verse 4. There's an acceptance of judgment. All right? There's an appeal to mercy. There's acknowledgement of offense. There's an acceptance of judgment. Look at 4B. You're right when you pass sentence. You're blameless when you judge. And he goes even on to talk about just this, this idea of original sin. He's not trying to, to kind of, again, angle his mistakes. He's trying to go, look, I'm a sinner and I sinned, and I'm owning it. And God, you are just in your judgment. Be merciful. But he's throwing himself at, at the feet of the mercy of God. This is not where David stops. And this is why Psalm 51 is so important, okay? Because it doesn't just stop at conviction. This is why I'm using the word repentance. Repentance isn't about face. It's a U-turn. And too often... Man, as a non-Christian, you definitely don't get this. But as a Christian, this is just so misunderstood. It's like, man, I feel conviction, and then, like, I'm going to do the kind of just, like, degrade myself kind of thing. Like, I'll own it, sort of. And, man, I just, uh, I'm not worthy to read my Bible. When were you ever worthy to read your Bible? Right? I I'm not worthy to pray to God. I'm going to, like, just not pray for, like, a couple days. Like, when were you ever worthy to pray to a holy God? Right? Like, we, we play this game with ourselves as if, like, that pleases God. As if that cleanses us in any way and honors God in any way, which it doesn't. It just speaks to how vain we are. Okay? It speaks to, to what we really think our relationship with God is based upon, which is our performance. That's not the gospel. All right? That's not what David's appealing to. Repentance comes full circle ultimately. It starts with a confession of sin, but it ends with a profession of faith. Okay, it ends with a profession of, of who God is. If it starts with a confession of what your sin is and who you are, who you truly are as a sinner, it ends with a profession of who God is. If your repentance doesn't bring you full circle, if it doesn't lead to a restoration of relationship, it's not finished. Look at verse 7. Look where David goes. He says, purify me with hyssop. All right, we get this Old Testament Exodus imagery of, of the Passover lamb and the blood being spread over the doorposts with hyssop. Okay, we get this Old Testament imagery of it being splattered in the temple. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Look away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. What kind of theology does David have that he can make a statement like that about God? You think he knows who God is? I think so. Right? He's going, the only agent in the cosmos that can deal with the stain of my sin and absolve it is God himself. Like he has this assurance, this confidence in the power of God, and he appeals to it. All right, so that's number four. And then number five, announcement of grace. So there's an appeal, there's an acknowledgement, there's an acceptance, there's an assurance, and ultimately, true repentance ends in an announcement of grace. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. And again in 14, God of my salvation, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. What David understands is the grace of God, the mercy of God. And he is appealing to it. Right? He, he, he's not hiding his sin. He's being open and honest about it. He's being real about his sin. He sees his sin as the Bible speaks to it. He has a right estimation of it, but he also has a right estimation of God. 
And this is what I want to challenge you in this morning is the two go hand in hand. Like, if you don't see your sin as the Bible sees it, how can you ever see God as the Bible sees him? Think about it. Right? If you don't look at sin as serious as the Bible looks at it, as divine treason, how will you ever know the goodness of grace that the Bible speaks about? About the depths of the mercy of God, his steadfast loving kindness that David is just remembering and recounting and counting on. This thing through and through has to say what's true, where it says nothing. And when it only says certain things that are true, you have Salabar Christianity and you're just denying your sin. You're picking and choosing what you want. And it's an untenable t- stance to take. Um, <laughs> we, we do this a lot with our, with our D groups. Um, we use this little, I, I don't know what you call it, kind of a, a little chart working that we call the repenter's quadrant. Because again, repentance is, is the mark of a Christian. A Christian life starts with it and it carries on with it. Okay, um, But we call this the repenter's quadrant. Um, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. If you're not, just track with me. I'm going to use some spatial directions, um, which um, I know can be, be challenging. I wish I would have drawn this out. But, but ultimately, um, there's kind of four categories of, 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 of people and, and what you trend towards when it comes to like being faced with your sin. Okay, and what I would want for you, or what I'd want for the life of embassy and us as a community, is that we would we would be repenters, that we would repent well, that Psalm 51 would be um, just a a a picture of us as well when we just find ourselves fallen. Okay, um, there's there's a tendency in your heart either to do one or two things, and I'll put them on the x-axis. When faced with sin, you either move towards apathy or you move towards action. Okay, you either move towards apathy or you move towards action. Okay, uh, and on the y-axis, what, what we'll put is you either move towards confessing or concealing. Okay, confessing or concealing. All right. Most people, especially if they're not Christians, and man, they 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 get the sin piece, but they don't get the grace piece, and no one's ever shared the gospel with them. Well, most people are, are what I would say bottom left corner people. They're hiders, okay? They move towards apathy for their sin, and they conceal it. They're apathetic to it, and they conceal it, right? They're hiders, okay? Um, or if, if they're not hiders, um, they, they move towards the next quadrant over, okay? Um, they move towards action, because they're aware of their sin, okay, but they're still concealers. So if they're not hiders, they're fixers. You tracking with me? They try and fix it, right? It goes like this. It's like, man, I really screwed up. What are like the five good things I can do before I can share it with anybody? And the confession kind of sounds like this. It's like, man, a couple weeks ago I was in a bad spot. I'm doing great now. I mean, I've had like some really great Bible readings, and I've memorized some scripture, and like, I mean, I'm doing great now. But I just want to let y'all know like a week ago I wasn't, but you know, I'm doing great now, you know, right? So that, it's the fixer, right? I want to fix myself up before I'm authentic and honest with anyone. Um, but then you can kind of move up the, the y-axis, and you still get the, the people that, that maybe confess their sin, but they're apathetic to it, right? What we call those are the talkers, right? We're like week after week, month after month, year after year. It's like, man, I'm really struggling with this. In college ministry, I, this, this would happen all the time as a college pastor um, because statistics, if they hold, would say that 95% of men and 75% of women struggle with pornography in this country, especially amongst 18 to 22-year-olds. And I would hear the same line over and over again, man, really struggling this week. And after about six weeks, I go, dude, you're not struggling. You're getting your butt whooped. Like there's no struggle, right? There, a struggle kind of entails a fight. It entails like... You know, you're like fighting back. You're just kind of laying down on the mat. You're just like, uh, you know, 
Like you're me fighting my brother who's seven years older. It's like I didn't fight back. I did the possum. Like I just laid there, you know. Like that wasn't a struggle. Like I was getting my butt whooped. That's the talker, right? You're apathetic about your sin. You actually don't really care to do anything about it. But you'll talk about it. You'll confess it. Ultimately, where I want us to be as a community is up and to the right. I want us to be people that confess it, don't conceal it. And I want us to be people that take action to it, that aren't apathetic to it. That's what repentance is. That's what we see in Psalm 51. David is confessing his sin and he is taking action, preaching the gospel to himself, even before the cross, and going, God, be merciful, be gracious, be who you are, and blot out my sin. So, repentance. Who's it from? How's it work? And ultimately, what's it for? And I've said this a couple times, but I'll say it again. Repentance is meant to pick you up off the ground. It's meant to turn you around, and it's meant to clean you off. The end of repentance is restoration. If you haven't got there, you haven't repented. Right? It's a full circle thing. It is a gift of God to restore you. And it takes time. I'm not saying it's like a, a one and done, but you need to understand what God's doing in his gift of repentance. It's to restore you back to right relationship with him. Now, that doesn't mean there's not consequence. That doesn't mean that, that all the brokenness that comes from your sin is, is somehow fixed. Man, but God gets great glory in restoring sinners. Right? He, he can draw some silver linings to our dark clouds, can he? And so there is some brokenness that comes from David's action. The child between him and Bathsheba passes. And then you see everything just spill out with Absalom and all through the rest of 2 Samuel. I mean, it, there's a lot of familial brokenness because of these, these decisions that David makes. But ultimately, God restores him back to relationship with him. I shared this in part, but I want to color it in a little bit more. Um, my story, and I was talking about the stronghold that I, that, that I had with pornography. Um, what I found in that season of my life is there were kind of two cycles I was in, okay? And I think it's appropriate because Psalm 51 is talking about sexual sin. And sexual sin, well, it's talking about a lot. It's talking about murder. It's talking a bunch, about a bunch of sin. But sexual sin is unique because of the amount of shame that it brings, all right, and there's two cycles that I've found um, in my own personal experience and in counseling people as a pastor. But there's this sin cycle, right, where I said, like, sin's going to take you where you don't want to go. Okay, it's going to keep you longer than you want to stay, and it's going to cost you more than you can afford to pay. Right? We can all resonate with that sin cycle. But then there's a shame cycle inside the sin cycle. And this is especially true for, for young Christians, right, where you almost, again, you, you underestimate your old self, your flesh, the body of death that you live in, you don't fully understand how the gospel works, right? That God has put in you a new heart and a new spirit, like we read about in Psalm 51, but you're still in this body of death that you read about in Romans 6 and Romans 7, okay? And little by little, God wants to transform you so that what's true of you is, is more of who Jesus is and less of who you used to be. And so you get caught in this sin cycle, and then what comes along with it is this shame cycle, what breaks that? What gets us out of that? What stops the downward, downward spiral and just this, this vortex that happens? Okay, because for me, um, the sin, yes, was just, man, it, it broke me. But the shame of it. And Psalm 51 in that season of my life was this this refuge. It was something I, I put to memory years ago because I didn't know how to repent. I didn't understand what God was trying to do in gifting that gift to me, in restoring me to relationship with him. I didn't understand the delineation between worldly shame and godly grief. And so it took preaching the gospel to myself over and over again that God loves me not because I'm lovable, but because he's loving. 
That his love for me comes out of who he is, not who I am. That changed everything because in my ups and downs, God didn't move. Amen? It didn't matter. I'm not saying my sin didn't matter. I'm saying my ups and my downs, my peaks and my valleys didn't change the holiness and the mercy of God. And so many of us, so many of you need to stop navel-gazing so much. There's too much of you in your story. And that's contributing to this vortex and this downward spiral of sin and shame. And you need to believe the gospel that if God purges you with hyssop, you will be clean. The imagery that's in Psalm 51 of cleanliness is so powerful, okay? So powerful, and, and, and it's rich, but you've got to understand just the stain of sin so you can actually appreciate how powerful the agent needed to be and was to cleanse you from yourself, to cleanse you from your sin. All right, I'm a product of the 90s. Tim McGraw, barbecue stain on a white T-shirt. That's not sin. That's fun. You laugh it off. It's like, oh, yeah, I can still foot with that girl on the railroad tracks. Sin is wearing a white wedding dress and dropping coffee all over it, right? It's wearing a white button down and dropping coffee all over it. You don't want to walk into certain environments with that, right? If I got a barbecue stain on my white T-shirt, I don't care. I would imagine if I'm a lady and I'm walking down the aisle, I would be pretty upset with this stain. If I'm a, a man and I have a massive presentation, I'm not walking into a boardroom with just coffee dripping down my white button down. Right? There's certain environments that we just kind of intrinsically know. We're like, man, like that environment kind of like needs some properness, some purity, some, some cleanliness to walk into. What about the throne room of God? Right? Like we don't, we're not walking into the throne room of God just by, oh, it's just, just a little... Little stubs, sorry. Sweet baby rays, don't mind it, don't mind it, not a biggie. The stain of sin, and it, it's, we feel it, don't we? It's, it's just, it clings to us. That's why the imagery is so powerful. It's like clothes are intimate, clothes touch our skin. We felt, I felt, just that feeling of just like shame and dirtiness. But then the gospel comes in, doesn't it? The gospel comes in and says there's an agent powerful enough to cleanse you of that. I mean, it's nothing short of the blood of the righteous one, but that is the one thing that can make us righteous. And God in his grace gives it to us. David gets this before the cross. He just, he, he sees it. It's like he's peering out going like, God, I get your loving kindness. But now we're post-cross and we see it more clearly. There's a powerful, um, there's a powerful picture, and I'll, I'll end with this just imagery. There's a powerful picture of the night that, that Jesus spends with his men as he celebrates the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, communion, called a bunch of different things, and right before he goes to the cross. He washes his disciples' feet. Okay, this is John 13. And he tells them, like, you're not going to understand what I'm doing, but he's washing their feet. He's giving a picture of servanthood. Um, and, and Peter's just, like, aghast, right? Peter's going, like, you're not washing me. Like, Peter sees Jesus rightly as the Christ, the Son of God. He's going, you're not washing me. That's beneath you. And Jesus makes this powerful statement. He goes, if I don't wash you, I got nothing for you. Right? He's going, like, you don't get it, Peter. Like, I have to wash you. And Peter's like, well, shoot, then wash all of them. He said, no, 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 just your feet, right? But, but what is he saying? I think what he's, what he's ultimately saying is he's, he's challenging what's in the human heart to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves right before God. If you don't hear anything today, I want you to hear this. You can't do that. Right? You don't have enough elbow grease to scrub the stain of sin off of your soul. Nothing less than the blood of the righteous one 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world can cleanse you. And God gave nothing less to you and me for free. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of the cross. That's why we come here every week and sing about what Christ has done on our behalf to clean us up. So, again, I don't know what you're walking in here with. If you're walking in deep, dark sin, and frankly, you need this to be the best day of your life, and you need to bring it into light. Or if it's in front of you, because, man, for, for so many of us, it will be. We're going to be shocked that we could have done that. But you need to understand how to repent. You need to understand that you can't just fix yourself up. You can't just clean yourself up. You need to go to God. And you need to believe the gospel, especially when you're at your lowest of lows. And so let me pray for us that we be the kind of community that repents well. And let me pray for you if you're in here and you need to repent for the first time. For the first time, go to Jesus and say, man, I've been trying to do it all on my own. I've been trying to scrub with elbow grease the stain of sin on my soul. And I see for the first time, one, just how impossible that is. But two, man, what an offense it is. What an offense it is that you just won't say thank you for what Jesus has done on your behalf. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. I do pray for us. I pray that we would be a community that repent well. We would be a community that takes a page from David. That we wouldn't look at David or anyone else in the Bible as these models, these exemplars on how to live a perfect life because they were far from perfect. But what David did better than most is that when he made his mistakes, he owned them. And he repented well. So I just thank you for his honesty, his authenticity in Psalm 51. I thank you that, wow, just the courage. The courage to write something like that so that we, thousands of years later, can see the darkest moments of his life and not focus on those, but focus on just the brightest redemption that you worked because of it. Focus on just the glory, the glory of your goodness in response to just the stain of his sin. And we just stand in awe. So I, I, I just I stand in awe of Psalm 51 and David's honesty and authenticity. He wasn't ashamed. He wasn't ashamed to put himself out there because all it did is exalt you and how merciful you are. And I pray for, for each and every person in here. I pray that, um, yeah, we live more authentically, more honestly, more freely in light of the gospel. And that we look to your son ultimately to be pure, to be clean before you. We thank you for what you've done through him in the gospel. And we cling to that truth. And may our lips declare the praise that you deserve. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about us or to get connected, please visit embassybtown.org.